Well, my name is Derek. I am the community groups pastor here, and uh, I am excited to open the word with you this morning. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today. Romans chapter 5, and before we read uh, those first 11 verses is what we're going to look at, um, I want to briefly catch you up on what's been going on in the book of Romans. And so uh, this is going to take like 30 seconds to a minute. So if you're a Roman scholar, I apologize that I'm going to breeze through four chapters in 30 seconds. But um, the time we have today just makes us do it. And so Paul's writing to the church in Rome and to some people who um, there's a bit of animosity going on between Jew and Gentile. And, and what the status is of each of those things. And Paul's writing uh, trying to address some of those things. And so starting really with the second half of chapter 1 and going through most of chapter 3 in the book, if you were to read it, you come to find out pretty quickly everyone's a sinner. Right? Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, we're all on level playing ground because of our sin, that our sin has put us um, under God's wrath. And then at the end of chapter 3, and really going into chapter 4, Paul unpacks and tells them, but there is hope for sinners, that there is forgiveness of sin available through Jesus Christ, and that we can, through faith in Christ, be forgiven of our sins and restored to relationship with God. So really, in those first few chapters, Paul has kind of three things that he wants the readers to understand. And the first is that they are sinners and stand under God's condemnation. The second is that God offers forgiveness through Jesus and that we can, through faith, be justified and brought back into relationship with God. And that word justified, it's going to be important, or justification, because you're going to see it here when we start out in chapter 5. The word justification, it's a theological term that we use, and it simply is this. It's God's declaration that we are righteous before Him. Justification is God's declaration of our righteousness before him. And that righteousness doesn't come through something we do, but through Christ, through his death and resurrection and our faith in that. And so this is what Paul has been talking about. And then he gets to chapter 5, and he's going to shift gears in chapter 5 to talk about, okay, this is what we have. We have justification. Now, what are the consequences of that? What are the benefits that are given to us as believers? And today, really, all we're going to do, I hope, is to just be amazed at what God has given us in Christ, to see the benefits that he has for us and how we can live in them. And so look with me at Romans 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. This is the word of the Lord. In our lives, relationships matter. Um, they matter a lot. Who we know, who we are in 
relationship with. It, it makes up a lot of what we think about and what consumes our lives. And we will go to, to great lengths to build those kinds of relationships. As I was thinking about relationship and how that works, it's interesting in our culture and society, and I think this is probably true of all of them, that relationships that you have, they are established off of performance, right? So I'm in a relationship with my wife, and, and we got there because I did particular things. I performed a certain way to convince her to go out with me, to keep going out with me, to eventually get engaged to me, and then to marry me, right? I, that, that's the way that it worked. I performed, relationship happened. And honestly, our relationship is sustained on some of that too, right? If I quit just completely loving my wife, if I quit trying to serve her, if I quit paying attention to her, right, what's going to happen to the relationship? Eventually, it's going to come to an end. And this is the way it works. We do this in our jobs, right? The job that you have now, you got because in some way, shape, or form, you had previous performance that led to you getting that job. And so what we do in our lives is we try to establish these different relationships, and we do it through performance. And for a lot of us, in fact, all of us in some way, shape, or form, we base our value, our identity, our significance off of relationships. Right? If you ever get to meet someone or you know someone who is moderately famous or very famous, you have to admit, right, you like being able to tell people that you know this person. Right? You like what it does, what it, the, the esteem it builds in you. Relationship matters. What people think of us. How that relationship is established matters. Performance, relationship. If I get the performance, I get the relationship. If I get the relationship, I get the boost in self-esteem. And the good news of the gospel is it tells us something completely different. It's the only relationship where you get the relationship before the performance. In fact, the performance was done by someone else so that you could enter into the relationship. And what Paul unpacks for us is actually there's a whole lot of benefit that comes with this relationship, and it's not up to you to even sustain it. And so, again, what I want us to do is just marvel at what we have in the justification, the, the declaration of our righteousness that then brings us into relationship with God through Christ. And there are a lot of things he lists in these 11 verses, but we can kind of break them down into two categories. One is what justification brings and then where hope leads. Those are kind of the two things we're going to see as we walk through these verses together. And we start with what justification brings. What does this justification, this declaration of righteousness for us, bring to us? Well, he opens it up right there in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Right? Justification brings Peace with God. A few weeks ago, if you were here, in concluding our Guard Your Heart series, Gib walked us through uh, Philippians 4, where it says that the peace of God will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And it's this idea of this settledness in the midst of turmoil. In the midst of the emotions that swirl, we can find peace. And that's a reality, and Paul wrote about that. But what he's talking about here, when he says peace with God, is very different. The change in preposition from peace of God to peace with God is important for us. Because what it means to have peace with God means that hostility has been removed. If we need peace with someone, there is animosity that is going on between us. And so what Paul is saying is that we have 
peace with God that the hostility has been removed. Throughout the book, and we haven't read it, but he's been talking about this animosity that exists between us and God. And even later in verse 10, you may have noticed, right, while we were enemies, we were enemies of God, but now we have peace with him through Christ. Through our faith in Christ, the hostility is gone. But the beauty of God's peace, it goes even farther than that. We all know it's possible. It's, it's possible to have an absence of hostility, but no restoration of relationship. Some of you have had people where you have had this great relationship and something happened and that relationship was broken and there was animosity. And, and now maybe the animosity has gone, but really the relationship has never gone back to the way it was. You don't really even have a relationship much anymore. It just kind of, we're not angry at one another. But the peace that we get with God, it doesn't just remove hostility. He actually brings us into relationship. Hostility, enmity is removed and it's replaced with relationship. And this is all because of the death and the resurrection of Christ. right? Because you have been justified. And here's why that's so important. If it's based on what Christ has done, if that peace that's given to us is based on what Christ has done and not on what we have done, the status of our peace with God, it can never change. It's never going to change. So here's what I mean. Here's why that's important. Some of you need to hear, God's not mad at you. He's not sitting up in heaven going, if you would just get your act together now, then this relationship could work. He's not up there fuming, wondering when you're going to stop sinning. He's not angry that you struggle reading your Bible. You have peace with him. Hostility has not just been removed. It's been replaced with relationship. He's not angry. He wants to be in deeper relationship with you. It's what justification brings. But beyond that, Paul tells us that justification brings abundant grace. I love that in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. If we are in Christ, if we have been justified through faith, then God's grace is constantly upon us. And now that idea of standing in God's grace, it's a little different than what we normally think of. At least I, when I think of God's grace, typically think of something that is done by God, an act that he does, or something he gives to me. But this idea has a different kind of connotation. And one of the scholars that I read in studying this passage, Douglas Moo is his name, he has a really helpful explanation about this. Here's what he says. He says, here, talking about verse 2, here, however, grace is used in a slightly different nuance, denoting not the manner in which God acts, or the gift that God gives, but the state or realm into which God's redeeming work transfers the believer. It is the realm in which grace reigns. It's a transfer into the realm of grace, the place where grace always is there and available for us. It's not something that God has given Right? It's not something that God gives in a particular moment, although those are great things. This is actually, it's a constant presence in our lives. It's a transfer of your life 
out of the realm of regular, ordinary, out of darkness, into grace that's always available. Because we have been justified. Because we are in Christ, God's grace is constantly present, present to us. We have been serving here now. I've been serving here now, and our family has been here now over a year. And one of the things I, I love about just as the longer you're at a place, right, I get to stand up here and tell you the good news that God's grace is constantly present in your life. But the beauty of that is I can look around this room, and now a year or 15 months in, I know some of your faces. I know your stories. I know the difficulties and the pain and the seasons of life that you walk through. And I know that some of you need to just hear today, God's grace is there. It is more sufficient than you can imagine. And you may wonder, how am I going to get through this? How are we going to make it? If you have been justified by faith, God's grace will always be present. In our times and seasons of sufferings, my, at some point, my wife and I heard this quote, <laughs> and, uh, and I thought it was we cling to it a lot. And, and the quote is this. It says, God's grace is not present in your vain imaginings. And so here's what that's saying, right? When we think about suffering, when we think about the difficulty that's coming to us, and we think, how in the world are we ever going to make it? How are we going to face this difficulty? We don't think we can do it. The problem is God's grace isn't present in your imagining of what it's going to be. But the reality is that God's grace is always present in your life. And so no matter what you walk through, it's going to be there. And so tomorrow when you wake up, you know what's going to be available for you? The grace of God. On Thursday morning when you are facing whatever it is, the difficulty that's coming in your week, the grace of God will be there. Because he has transferred you into the realm of his grace. It's where we stand. Justification brings abundant grace. Justification also brings us hope, but it's not just a particular thing, right? Hope is actually going to be the theme of really most of these verses. Starting at the end of verse 2 and going all the way through verse 11, hope is the theme that Paul kind of zeroes in on. And so we're going to see where hope is leads us. Look at the end of verse 2. He says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. The first place that hope leads is to joy. And Paul says that we rejoice, right? We have joy in the hope of the glory of God. What does he mean by that? It's a future hope. That because we have been justified, because Christ died and then rose again, we have hope that one day he is going to return and he is going to set all things right. That one day what we have been longing for, what we were made for, which is to be in the presence of God, communing with him, it's going to come into its fullness. There is a hope out there for us that says it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. God is going to return. He's going to set everything right. And then we get to be in his presence forever. This is the hope. The hope of, of eternal joy as I dwell with God. 
I love the way that Tim Keller talks about this, of being fully present in, in, in God and, and access to him. He says this. He says, by itself, heaven, which would be the hope of glory, right? This time we're with him. By itself, heaven can be an abstract and unappetizing idea. But if you come to taste access with God and realize how intoxicating it is just to have a couple drops of his presence on your tongue, you will desire to drink from the fountainhead. That desire, focus, and joyous certainty of the future is called the hope of glory. Think of a moment in your life where you have just felt the presence of God more fully than other times. Right, where you just, you just felt like, yes, <laughs> this, is, this is what I longed for. <clears throat> you, you may not have a whole lot of those. I can remember it's been years ago when we lived in Louisville. We were attending a church there, and there was just something about, I don't remember what the sermon was about. I don't remember many of the songs that we sang, but at the conclusion of the service, we had taken communion together, and there was a song that we sang about being together and, and singing our praise and lifting our praise to God, and there was just something about the spirit of the people in that moment. I've never been in a place where everybody sang as loud as they could in a moment like that and praised to God, and you could just feel it. Like We just felt the palpable presence of God. And I remember at the end, the conclusion that the pastor stepped up to kind of close us and give us a benediction. He just stepped up and he was like, that was really fun, wasn't it? Yes, yes, it was really fun, that presence of God. And if I could get it again, and here's the crazy thing, being fully in the presence of God, that little taste that I got, it won't compare. And that will be just the first day. Think, think of the best day you've ever had, the most joy-filled day you've ever had. When you step into the presence of God, that first day in his presence, it's going to be better than your best day you've ever experienced here. And the beauty of God and the beauty of Christ is that he is infinite. And so the, the second day that you are in eternity with God will be better than the first day. And the third day, it will be better than the second day and the first day. And the fourth day will be better than those days. And every day will get consecutively better. There will be more joy forever. And if you think, I don't understand what that means, you're in good company. Because <laughs> I don't either. I just know that's what's available. And this is the joy. Because we have hope. That word for hope means there's a certainty to it. And this is what Paul's saying. There is a certainty to it. There is coming that day. But it doesn't just give us a future hope. He talks about present hope. We have hope in our sufferings. And notice he doesn't say that we rejoice. Right? We rejoice for our sufferings. Christians aren't masochists. We aren't out there just looking around going, okay, how can I suffer? If I suffer, God will love me more. It's not that we rejoice for our sufferings. We rejoice in them. And if you've been around Christianity for very long, this probably isn't a new idea to you. But Paul is saying that, that suffering comes into our life. And we don't ha have time to unpack all of the why, but that's one of the reasons I really love this passage. Paul doesn't really unpack the why. He just kind of skirts through all the way to the end of it. He's like, you know, suffering, it produces this and this, and it eventually gets us around to hope. We rejoice. We have joy because our trials and our tribulations, they conspire together to produce hope 
in our life. And why that's so important is that Paul says hope doesn't put us to shame. Sufferings are important in our life because it develops hope in us. Hope, it's like a muscle. If you don't use your muscles, you know what they will do? They will atrophy. They will just shrink and you won't be able to use them anymore. And so hope is that way. And so God uses suffering in our life to to work out our hope and to literally take it to the gym and to work it out so that it gets stronger and stronger. And I guarantee you, if you're like, I don't understand what you mean, find another follower of Jesus who's walked through hard things. I mean, really hard things, through, through pain, through difficulty, through loss. And they will tell you, yeah, I grew, clo- I grew closer to Jesus through that. That in my life, the suffering that I experienced produced endurance. That endurance produced character. And that character produced hope. And it's so important that hope leads us to joy because what Paul says is that hope, hope in God, present hope in God, it will not be put to shame. In verse 5, he says, hope does not put us to shame. That's an audacious statement by Paul. And kind of what we should ask in that moment, right? How, how do you know that, Paul? How do you know that hope won't be put to shame? He anticipates the questions because at the end of verse 5, here's what he says. Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, verse 6, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. And then verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. How does Paul know that hope will not be put to shame? How does Paul know that God will always deliver? He will always come through. He knows because of the love of God. Hope leads to God's love. It leads us to God's love. And he says that love of God, it's going to be poured into your spirit. Or excuse me, it's going to be poured into your hearts through the spirit. And that word poured into, it it connotes abundance or extravagance. It's not just this little bit of God's love that's given to us by the spirit. No, it is an abundant and extravagant love. And it's poured out to us in tangible ways into our lives. And the reason is, is because of what Paul says there in verses 6 through 8, and we'll get to those a little more detail in just a moment, but it's because God's love for you isn't based off something subjective. There is something that we can point back to. There's an, there's an objective moment that we can point back to and go, that's how I know that God loves me. Right? That's how I know that God will always come through because I can look back, because I've been justified. I can look back to the cross and I can know. And it's so important that we understand that it's based off what Christ has done for us. There's a a guy named Christopher Ash who wrote this really helpful teaching commentary on the book of Romans. And and he talked about this when he comes to understanding the love of God as this objective thing that we can look back to, but that is even now being poured into our lives in tangible ways by the Spirit. And it's a little bit of a longer one, but I wanted to read it for you. He says, how do I know? that my subjective experience of hope and suffering will not prove to be wishful thinking and let me down. I know because the Spirit of God pours into my heart in present tense experience the love God has for me. 
He does this by sealing to my heart the objective truth of the cross. We may say that the love of God is poured out by the Spirit and proved at the cross. But to have subjective feelings without the objective anchor of the cross will deprive my assurance of any stability, for I will be at the mercy of my feelings. But to have, but to have the objective truth without the subjective ministry of the Spirit will leave the cross as a theoretical truth. We need the objective demonstrations of God's love at the cross poured into our hearts by the Spirit in the present. In other words, God's love for you is not based on your feelings. His love for you is not based on how you woke up feeling today. His love for you is based on what he has done in Christ at the cross. And, I almost said but, but it's not but, it's and, and he is going to pour that love into your life today, exactly the way you need it through his spirit. There's an objective truth that is there. And we can know, we can look back to the cross because Christ died for the unrighteous. <coughs> Excuse me. He died for those who were ungodly while we were weak. While we could not do it ourselves, he said, he shows his love for us. So while we were still sinners, while we were his enemies, we talked about that earlier, right? We were enemies of God. I have, I've never been in a war. I've never fought in the trenches. I do know this. No soldier takes a bullet for the enemy. You may take a bullet for your comrade, but no soldier steps in front of a bullet for the enemy. While we were his enemies, Christ died for us. This is the objective truth of his love. This is how you know he is always going to love you. He is always going to be present. And that understanding of what has been done for us at the cross, it's brought to our minds over and over again by his spirit. Right? That, that's why we know hope won't disappoint. Because we can look back, right? Because what happens is our feelings, they lie to us. They whisper in our ear, you know, if God really loved you, he wouldn't let this thing happen to you. If God really loved you, he would give you this thing that you want. And to those lies, to those questions that come up based on our feelings, we get to point back to the cross and we say, oh no, <laughs> there's the proof. There's the proof of God's love. Probably my favorite quote of all time comes from this idea. And it's by a man named Sinclair Ferguson. And this is what he says. If the Father loves me so much that he did not spare his own son, but delivered him up to be crucified for me, no further guarantee is needed of his wholehearted and permanent commitment to me and to my blessing. Whatever happens to me must be seen in that light. If he loves me so much that he would deliver up Christ to be crucified, no further guarantee is needed. Our hope is built not on the subjective nature of our feelings. Our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. And today, we all need to be reminded, your feelings can lie to you. 
a lot of days I wake up and I don't feel very saved. <laughs> I don't feel that God loves me in the ways that he should. And yet I can point back to the cross and go, oh, no. There's the truth. There's the reality. His spirit pours that objective truth into my mind. Day in and day out. And as the spirit does that, we get to the last place that hope leads and where Paul kind of ends here in verses 9 through 11. The last place hope leads us is to endurance. This is what he says there in verses 9 through 11. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more. Now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So we have hope that leads to joy because we, we know there is this future that's coming for us. And it fuels our present walk through suffering because God loves us, and that love leads to endurance. It can be a bit confusing what Paul is saying there, right? If, if we've been justified, much more shall we be saved. It, it boils down to what he's saying is this. If God saved you when you were his enemy, right? if, he, if he removed the hostility and brought relationship, if he saved you then, now that you are reconciled with him, now that you're in relationship, He's got no problems keeping you there the whole time. He, he saved you when it was, you were his enemy. Now that you're his friend, he's just going to keep moving you forward. He's going to endure. He, he doesn't expect that it's your job now to keep you saved. He didn't send Christ to, to die and to suffer on the cross, to have been raised from the dead, to save you and then go, okay, good luck keeping yourself that way. He said, no, I, I, I've got this. This relationship, it is secure because you have been justified. It will always be there. You can always come back to it. And this is just the logical conclusion, and it ends... You notice, again, he goes back at 11 to rejoicing. I mean, just what the, the logic of Paul here, he's a very logical writer and thinker. Right? I've been justified. I've been declared righteous and restored to relationship with God. I'm at peace with him. His grace is just abounding to me, and that gives me hope that one day I will be with him, and that, that, that idea that I will be with him one day is what fuels my, my endurance right now. And I don't have to wonder if it's ever going to change because I can point back to the cross. That, that, that's his logic, and, and that logic ends with him just rejoicing. And these benefits, these consequences that Paul walks through, they're, they're ours. Therefore, if you have been justified, if you have, through faith, been forgiven of sins, declared righteous, been restored to relationship with God. All of these truths, they're there for you as well. They're yours. And what I love about this is we get to gather together and we get to sing. And we get to sing of those truths. It's, it's a pretty new one that we've started singing, but that song that we sang right before this, the all-sufficient merit, I love that song. It is done. It is finished. No more debt I owe. 
And if you're like me, we can sing that and I can be here gathered with you and go, yes, yeah, that's the way it is. Peace with God, grace that's available. And then I'm going to wake up tomorrow and I'm going to forget that. (laughs) It'll probably happen later this afternoon. For some of us, it might even happen on the drive home. I have kids. I know. You're going to forget. I'm going to forget. But here's the beauty of the gospel. God, he will never forget. What's going to happen is this week, it's going to come up again. Those lies are going to whisper. Yeah, God, I mean, are you sure he loves you? Think about what you did today. You forgot to get up and read your Bible and pray for the third day in a row. I don't know that God can forgive that. I mean, would he love somebody who can't perform? Those are the lies that creep in. As I was reading and studying, I came across a hymn that I've never heard before. That It's titled, I Hear the Accuser Roar. And here's what it says. Well may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all and thousand more. Jehovah knoweth none. And so God, would you help us to know that reality? To know the reality of your great love for us, that we have been justified through faith in Christ. And the benefits of that justification, our peace with you, the grace that you give, the hope that we have, God, it will never be put to shame that what you began in us, you will finish. And so this week, this afternoon, bring home anew the truths of the gospel in our lives. Let us remember that this relationship was not based on our performance. But you have changed us. And you desire deeper relationship with us. And so in response to the gospel, in response to the joy we have in you, in response to your love, God, would you help us to seek you more? To find relationship with you, beautiful and sweet. For your glory and our joy in you, in Christ's name, amen.